Hi everybody, my name is Pat Hogarty. Welcome back to California Real Estate Practice, uh, Real Estate 310. Today is show number 19, and we are in chapter nine. We're uh, gonna be picking up and finishing off chapter nine today, uh, which is basically talking about escrow and title insurance. This is a subject area that you've had before, I'm sure. If you've had real estate principles before, you have had uh, this escrow and title insurance chapter or topic or information in there. Uh, but I'm going to go back over it again. And remember, the concept that you want to think about when you're working with the escrow and the title insurance, in fact, any of these chapters, is not the idea that necessarily that you understand how it works, but keep in mind that you are the one that's going to have to explain it to your clients who are, as I've mentioned before, are not in the business. And they may be, or, you know, on the average, maybe buying a house every five or six years. In some cases, some people may live in a house for 18, 20, 25 years before they buy another house. So they're not familiar with these topics. And so it's going to be incumbent upon you, you as the real estate agent, real estate broker, to explain these, this information to your clients. Where we want to pick up today is, is on the example and this particular book, in the fifth edition, this happens to be, I think, on page 346. And what we're going to do is just take a simple example and go through how this escrow process works. And again, I'll do the best I can to show it on the, on the, uh, on the document camera here and over the uh, TV. But keep in mind that this is something you're going to want to spend some time going over. The first thing is, is that what they're trying to do here is that before you can start out understanding what the problem is or what you really need to explain to your client, you have to understand, if you will, it's kind of like a legal thing, like what's the facts of the case. So what we need to know is, is who the buyer and the seller is, and the reason why we need to know that is because it's going to show up on the escrow statements. It's going to be a separate financial escrow statement for the buyer and one, from the, and one for the seller. So we need to always know who those people are. We need to know what the sales price of the property happens to be. In this case, it's $800,000. We need to know that, that they're going to get a brand new loan against the property. And if you do the math on this, what they're essentially doing is that they're, they're getting 80%. The first note and deed of trust that they're going to get is in the amount of 80% of the value or the sales price of the house. And what I can kind of get from here is the reason why they, they're picking this particular amount out here is because they're trying to keep it so that they're, so that it's uh, 80, if you will, if it's 80% or less, so that they're not having to pay any private mortgage insurance on that first loan. That's the reason why they're wanting to do that. Uh, as an example, when I bought my house a couple years ago, I put down enough money to make sure that my first loan was only for 80% of the value of the property. Now, they're also in here getting a second trust deed. And I'm not sure whether in the facts of the case where they're explaining where this is coming from. A lot of people will get these in a number of different ways. Sometimes it may be the owner is going to carry back a second loan for a period of time. Sometimes it might be where they're getting a second that's more like an equity line of credit type of a loan. And uh, so they're, what they're essentially doing is they're borrowing some of the money right here, but because they're borrowing it to cover that 20%, they're not having to pay PMI on that big first amount is what they're doing. 
They also have a down payment coming in here of forty of another eighty thousand dollars. So the between the two of them, eighty eighty is one hundred and sixty. If you add that back together again, it comes up to be eight hundred thousand dollars. On top of that, what they're doing is they're saying there's a brokerage fee on here. If you do this, this is $48,000. If you do 6% of $800,000, it's $48,000. It's the brokerage fee for the, for the entire sales cost of selling the property. Now, how that's split out is dependent upon who the brokers are, who listed it, who sold it, whatever. Uh, and it just gives you the name of the broker. There's some existing liens against the property right now, and they're telling us that there's a first deed of trust against the property for $290,000. We don't necessarily know who that is. That could be, and in your case, could be against you know any loans that are owed on the property. They're just showing that there's some existing loans. You also have something on here called the street assessment bond. If you remember back, probably when you took principles and they talked about taxes, one of the ways that the... Uh, that developers will raise money to do repair work, not repair work, but to put off-site improvements in, like streets, curbs, gutters, drainage systems, water pipes, or whatever, is that they will go ahead and uh, work with the government organization to have what they call a bond issue, and those bonds will be sold to the public, investors, to raise the money to afford to be able to pay those or to pay for those improvements. That $1,300 is probably something that because the bond is small enough now that the person is probably going to pay that off. In some cases, you may find out that you may pay those bonds off in escrow, or in some cases, you may find out that they're large enough that you're going to be able to just assume the bond and continue to pay it until it's paid off. Uh, they also have down here that there's a CLTA policy paid for by the seller. That's a California Land Title Association policy for $2,165. Another important inf piece of information they're giving you is a date of closing. They're saying it's going to be June 1st, 2020. What's significant about that is that helps us understand what our prorations are going to be. Prorations being, you know, who's going to pay, you know, what are the property taxes, fire insurance policies, rents, or whatever. So that's the point of that. One thing I did want to mention down here that they do talk about is the proration. Proration is things, some of the things that you prorate would be things like property taxes, because maybe the seller has already paid for those in advance, interest that they've paid ahead of time. They may have fire insurance where they've paid the uh, premium for the whole entire year and they're going to get some money back. You have rents. Remember, rents are paid at the beginning of the month, so if this place was closed in the middle of the month, that would mean half the rents would go to the seller and half of them would go to the buyer. Okay, so anyway, you're talking about proration. The other thing, too, in talking to the escrow officers, what they have told me is that for proration purposes, they normally utilize the month. I know the book talks about the banker's month, and it talks about 30 days in a month, but I've asked several escrow officers, and they say, hey, you know, if it's February, you know, we, you know the, and it's the 15th of February, the numerator is 15, and the denominator is 28. Okay, so we, we use that month, those days in that month. Okay, so now that we know the facts of the case, and I'm going to kind of try to zip through this fairly quickly because, uh, you know, we could spend anywhere from a couple minutes to hours on this going over this. I think the key thing that you want to keep in mind with this, though, is that you, the real estate agent, need to make sure. I mean, I'm telling you what good agents do now. Some people will say, no, I never do that. Well, you know. I mean, I'm talking about the top-of-the-line agents, real estate agents, will show up at the escrow. 
at the close of escrow. It's top-of-the-line agents, agents that are very extremely successful, will also already have gone over these documents. The reason why they want to do that is remember that it's the real estate agent that has been working with these clients for quite some time. The real estate agent understands his clients better than the escrow officer does and knows whether or not this, his people are the type that they need to have the calculators out and explaining the details or whether they're just big picture people. Anyway, so there's two statements and the, another thing that I want to emphasize when you're going over these in detail, you want to pull the statement out for seller and make a copy of the one for buyer and compare the two of them so that you can compare where money is coming into the escrow and where money's going back out. Up here, they're just giving you the name of the escrow company. This is a Southern California uh, operation down in Southern California. That's why it's an escrow company rather than, say, up in, Sac in California, where uh, Northern California, where it might be like financial title company would be the escrow company. This is telling you this is the seller's statement. It's giving you the address of the property. It's giving you the name of the seller, the closing date, and the escrow date, or the escrow number. Escrow number happens to be something that's assigned by each individual company is unique to that company. It's the way that they track, you know, it's kind of like anything else when somebody calls up and has an order, what they do is they assign a number to it so they can track it through their system. Okay. Now, to get the big picture on this, what you want to do is up at the top you see we have debits and credits. This happens to be an old accounting term where we're talking about things like a T account. So if you've had accounting one or accounting 100 or whatever the basic accounting course is, You'll be familiar with what these happen to be, but if you track along, you can see what's going on. This, again, is the sellers. Notice down on the left-hand side, these numbers are grouped together. There are things that are grouped together. So it would be like as if I was asking you for a financial statement, your own personal financial statement. You would have an area where you may have your income. You have another area where you have your normal monthly expenses, such as uh, house payment, rent payment, or whatever. That's what we're doing down here. So here they're going financial. They're showing that there's a total consideration of $800,000. That's a credit that's coming into the seller. In other words, the seller's earning that for selling their property. is worth $800,000. There's a new second deed of trust of $80,000. These are the prorations. Okay. Then down below here, this is where we start to see where we're grouping things together. There's a payoff charges. There's a principal balance here that they're paying off interest. Then they have some other fees like forwarding fee and a reconveyance fee, by the way. That reconveyance fee is that when that deed of trust is paid off, in order to get that off of the public records, what they have to do is they have to file. They can't go down to the county recorder's office and say, take that old deed and, you know, ball it up and, uh, you know, tear it up and throw it away. What they do is they file another document called the deed of reconveyance that says, don't pay attention to that old deed of trust. It's paid off. So they're charging a fee for that. They have some other disbursements that they've paid in here. Pest control, okay, there was a $1,000 fee for pest control. That probably was for work that needed to be done on the property. Uh, they had a home warranty inspection. So what's happening here is they're buying home warranty policy for the uh, new buyers. There's a commission right here that the seller's having to pay of $48,000. Okay. Then again, down. These are all money that the sellers having to come out of, you know, having to pay. Title insurance premium, escrow fees, documentary transfer tax stamps. Remember, that's fifty-five cents per five hundred dollars, or a dollar ten per thousand. So if you took there's uh, eight hundred one thousands in eight hundred thousand. So if you take eight hundred times a dollar ten, that's where you get that figure from. 
Uh, you have a recording fee of the reconveyance that's charged by the county, and you have a street assessment bond for the $1,300, okay? The remaining part of the fees down here is you have an escrow fee, you have a, a processing fee, and another fee, and you may have lots of different fees in here. This is a short example. You could have a lot of different fees, and what you want to do is make sure that you understand what they are in case the client asks. This is the net proceeds. This is what the seller's going to get out of the transaction. These are the totals. And keep in mind that the totals do not have to match or are not going to match between the seller and the buyer. Okay? On the other side, you see the same situation, only that you're now you're looking at the buyer's statement. Again, same thing. We have the name of the uh, escrow company, the property address, the buyer, the closing date. We have debits and credits. Notice that this figure here was on the credit side for the seller. It's now on the credit. It's on the buy. It's on the debit side for the buyer. Okay. So notice that if you compare the two statements next to each other, you'd see where the fees are showing up. Certain fees. Now remember, there's going to be fees that 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 the uh, that the seller is paying that the buyer is not going to be paying. So that you're going to have different fees. Okay, but it does help to run the two statements side by side to understand where the money is coming in and where it's going out. Down over here, you see that there's some credits coming in. You have a, a total cash deposit. Uh, they have one deposit. They probably wrote this deposit out when they, when they made their initial offer on the properties where that came from. Then they had another cash deposit. I'm going to make the assumption that that came from probably the sale of a property that they made or for some other area. It may come from savings, but whatever. It's just more money they're bringing into the transaction. This is the new deed of trust that they're going to get, $640,000. And this is the new second deed of trust that they're going to get for $80,000. Okay? Down below that, this is their prorations and disbursements, their fees. All the way listed down here, this is your prorations. Title charges, escrow fees, and the reason why they break them out as title and escrow because you want to track, you know, there's two different fees. There's one for escrow, and that's a fee. That's on a fee schedule, by the way. You can go to any title company and say, excuse me, I would like to, in fact, you should have this with you when you go out with a client. You should have, you should go to them and say, I'd like to have your fee schedule so that when I sit down with a client and figure out a net sheet, I know what to charge, you know, what to put down for the escrow fees and the title fees. And that's something that they provide for you for free. Uh, these are just some more escrow charges here. Uh, one thing I do want to mention to you is notice that you do have things like a messenger fee. So when the title company or the escrow company says, don't worry about it, we'll have that FedExed or, or sent someplace for you, guess what? You're getting charged for that. Okay, there's no free lunch. Then down below here, these are the fees that you as the buyer are paying. You have a loan fee. They have $6,400. That's probably a one-point fee or 1% 1 of the loan for points, loan origination fee. They, and keep in mind that you really ought to know what those fees are. Some companies will tell you that there are loan fees. Some will tell you they're loan origination fees. Some of them will call them points. I'm just going to make the assumption that they're getting charged one point which is prepaid interest for the loan, for, the, for what they're getting. They have a credit report. They have an appraisal fee for $350 that was done. They have a tax service, a documentary fee. And then they have some interest that they're paying. That interest is from, uh, looks like, for this day to that day, which is uh, from the 31st to the 1st, which is roughly, I guess, what, about 
two days worth of interest. Is that two days or one day? I'd have to figure that out. I think it's one day's worth of interest. They're due to get a refund, which is always nice at the bottom of the escrow. Yes, you had a question? No, go ahead and hold the button. Keep holding the button. Interest on what? What are the interest fees for? Interest on the whole loan amount it took? Yeah. Interest on what? Yeah, what happens, you can let the button go. What happens is, is when the lender sends the documents to you and says, okay, the money is going to be available on this day. You know, the bank says, we're going to cut the check. We're taking the money out of our bank. We, the bank, we, the lender, are taking the money out of our bank for your loan, and we're going to send it to the escrow company, okay? That money from the day they take it out of their account and deposit it in that escrow, they're not earning interest anymore on that. So they're going to start charging you interest. Okay? I mean, I don't know any other way to tell you that, but they're going to start charging you interest. That's why people most of the time will want to make sure that they close the transaction and they move in the same day because they're going to pay interest on that money, whether or not they're living, you know, the minute that money is moved from that account to the new, to the escrow, they're going to pay. Same thing like if sometimes people will move out of a house, I'm sorry, they'll close the transaction, you know, and they'll say something like, okay, we don't need to move in right away. We're going to take about a week or a week and a half. We're going to be moving from Southern California, for example. So we're going to let the seller stay there, and the seller is going to pay us rent. Well, guess what? One of the reasons why the seller is paying that rent is so that they get some money to help pay for that interest fee that they're going to pay for that money. The minute the money comes out of the account, you start paying interest on it. Yes, one more. No, you got to keep holding the button. The interest fee is based on what? The uh, rate, the uh, the interest rate you get, say you get a 7.1, so that, that same interest rate go on the same? Yes, yes. In other words, that when you borrow that money from them, the minute that money is available for your use, that you start making payments on interest on that money right off the bat. Because they're not making any money anymore. They've given it to you. Okay, so that's why all of this is very important to closely, you know, keep, keep all this stuff organized, you know. And that kind of makes sense to me, too. If I'm going to take $100,000 out of the bank and give it to somebody and not get any mo more interest on that money, if I'm going to give it to somebody, I'm going to start charging them. <laughs> I'm going to charge them interest the day that they start having the ability to use it. Okay. So anyway, that's this statement. Notice that if you compare the two of them, down the bottom, they don't balance, okay? That could be for a lot of reasons. It could be because of the fact that the seller is going to be paying more costs than the buyer is going to be paying. Uh, there might be more fees involved or whatever. They should balance between, in, within the account. They balance at the bottom within the account, but they don't balance between buyer and seller, okay? So that takes care of that page. And again, what I recommend is that all of the good agents that I know will normally contact and be right on top of the escrow. They normally will go ahead and contact the escrow officer or even the escrow officer. Most escrow officers, you know, because they've worked with agents in the past, understand how the, how the process works. And they'll probably call the agent and say, listen, all the docu documents are ready. Uh, for the sellers to come in, would you like to come in, you know, in the morning and uh, review them before they come in, or would you like to come in in the afternoon, or would you like to come in the day before? 
The concept is, is that you want to be able to sit down and make sure you understand what they are. Because when people go in to sign the paperwork with this escrow officer, they're probably only going to, they're going to walk in the door, get a cup of coffee, shake their hand, get a soda, sit down, and probably spend a total of maybe 30 minutes to maybe 45 minutes on the average with the escrow officer. So from the time they meet them till the time they walk out the door, they're going to be there for about 45 minutes. But during that period of time, they're going to be talking about a lot of money and a lot of, a lot of information. So you being sitting there next to them, understanding what this is, helps to explain what it is, what's going on. Plus, you don't want to have all of a sudden where the seller says something to the effect or the buyer says, oh, by the way, I don't understand that, so I'm not going to sign anything, and then you lose your entire commission. Okay, I mean, this is, this is getting close to your payday. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to get that close to the payday and then just go, oh, I'm going to let somebody else worry about that. You want to be there and make sure everything goes along very smoothly. Okay. Uh, a couple other things that they talk about in here is called the pr uh, Structural Pest Control Certification Report. Um, I'm always at a loss. Hold on a minute here. Let me turn this over for a minute. Uh, there are two types of things that the, uh, that, the, uh, that the report is going to discuss, and I'm trying to find them here. And I can never remember them. There's called, it's called Section 1 and Section 2, and I can't find it in here. But anyway, whenever you get this termite report, what's going to happen is the termite inspector is going to go out to the house and probably spend somewhere in the neighborhood between an hour to two hours looking at the house. They're going to crawl underneath the house. They'll crawl in every place they can possibly get to. They're going to be looking at things like the wood deck to see if there's any dry rot or any uh, uh, damage due to uh, uh, termites or anything, any wood, you know, due to wood. You know, like dry rot is where the wood gets wet and it can't breathe, it can't dry out, and it just gets wet, wet and it starts to crumble and fall apart. So the termite inspector is going to come back and write all these things up. And there's going to be two things, categories in this report they're going to write up. They have what we call Section 1 and Section 2. Section 1 things have to be corrected. Lenders are not going to lend you the money unless you have Section 1 items corrected. Section 1 items would be things like dry rot, uh, damage due to bugs, uh, you know, uh, termites, stuff like that. Section 2 items are things that could potentially cause a problem, but there's no problem right now. The example that I sometimes would like to use would be uh, like a loose toilet in a bathroom. Because uh, if you haven't put a toilet in, what happens is when you put the toilet in, there's a wax ring that sits underneath the toilet. If the toilet becomes loose, what happens is the water can leak out from underneath there. It can get underneath things like linoleum and, and tile. And what will happen is once it gets underneath there, there's no way for it to get the air to get to it to dry it out. It'll start, all of a sudden, you'll just walk in there one day, put your foot on the floor, and if you jump too hard, what'll happen is you'll be in the basement or you'll be on the first floor because the wood has rotted away. I've seen them so bad that I, I've seen bathrooms that if you went in there and walked in the bathroom, the toilet or the shower would fall right down through the, through the floor because of that. So if the termite inspector sees anything that could potentially cause problems like that, what they'll do is they'll write it up. Who fixes that is usually negotiated between the buyer and the seller. They can either decide to fix the, the Section 2 items or they can decide to just say, hey, the buyer will take care of it or I'll just go along with it. Okay, those, so that's that. 
Okay, so we took care of that. A couple things on here as far as um, the broker, you, your broker or you as the agent need to make sure that the broker maintains a copy of the pest control document report. Okay, remember when you get done with this transaction, you're going to have a file folder with a bunch of stuff in it. And that file folder, the original file folder you have has to be maintained by the broker. That should be from, that should have all the stuff in there, all of the reports. You should, uh, good brokers, not bad ones, good ones, good salespeople keep a log. They say, I talked to the client on this day about this. They keep a running log of what's going on. They have checklists to make sure they've covered everything. You know, I mean, usually agents are more of a, you know, when it gets to that point, they're type A type personalities. You know, they're worried about the details. The devil's in the details. Make sure everything is taken care of, okay? That file is maintained in the broker's office, okay? Um, next thing that they mention here, which is always important, is something called fire insurance. Uh, fire insurance, hazard insurance. Some people call it homeowner's insurance. Uh, a lender is not going to lend you any money at all without having insurance on the property, period. In fact, one of the things that I think I've mentioned in every class I've ever taught, that once you start to make that purchase offer and the offer is accepted, the new buyer needs to start right away to contact their insurance agent and find out if the insurance agent will be able to insure that property and how much it's going to cost. And also what happens is, is you want to make sure that your insurance agent contacts the escrow company and provides the necessary information to the escrow company so that the escrow company knows that you have insurance or are going to have insurance on the property. The reason why I say it's important that you as the buyer do that is because of the fact that in some cases, some insurance companies will not insure properties in certain locations. I'll give you an example, unless they've changed it. I have had AAA insurance, California Automobile, uh, California Automobile Association, the AAA insurance since 1973. And we've always had great, great luck with them. We've not really caused them any problems either. Well, a number of years, several, many years ago, I called them up and said, you know what, I'm thinking about the fact of looking at maybe putting all of my properties that I have underneath you. And we've all heard of that, you know, where, hey, you know what, if I go to one insurance agent or one company and insure everything, you know, my cars, my motorcycle, my houses, everything else through them, then they're going to give me a better rate. Well, they said, you know, I called them up and I asked them and I gave them the property locations. And, you know, like one of the properties that I actually both of the two of the properties that I owned were in El Dorado County. And where they were located is where there's a lot of trees around there. And they came back, and AAA is a very conservative type of company. You know, the reason why they make money is because they don't insure anything that they know there's going to be a possible big risk. So what they do is they just come out and say, we don't insure property in that area. And I say, well, I've been your client for all these years. They say, I'm sorry, we just don't insure property in that area. Now, I have another company that I use called Allied, and they insure property in that area. But the point is, is if I'm sitting here in escrow, getting ready to close in two or three days, and then find, and then call the insurance company and find out, uh-oh, they don't insure me in, in that area. I may be on the phone for the next, you know, next three or four hours or five hours making phone calls trying to find somebody to insure the property. So I want to make sure that I have that insurance lined up right away. You want to tell your clients get started on that right away. 
so that they know how much it's going to cost. You can discuss the, the, uh, deductibles, anything that's unique about the property, give the chance if the agent needs to come out and take a look at the property. In some cases, the, uh, the uh, insurance agent may want to come out, may want to inspect the property, may want to turn around because you say it has something. You may say, oh, it has a wood-burning fireplace or it has, uh, who knows, something that they go, uh-oh, we better go out there with a camera and take a look at that. And you don't know that until you talk to them. So it's important you find that out ahead of time, what the costs are, what the insurance is, what the deductibles are, what you're going to be insured for. Very, very important you get that done right away. Okay? Can't say enough about that. And that's the reason why when you do talk about the fact that if you're going to prorate the fire insurance, you may be doing that because of the fact that maybe the only people that will provide that insurance is the same company that the client that's selling the house has. Also remember, too, that there are houses that are in floodplains. There's also townhouses and condominiums that are in flood areas and that you may also have to have flood insurance on the house and you need to get that policy. And that's not something that's easy to do either. You know, if it's flood insurance, you have to get somebody that's going to give you the flood insurance. You need to check that out. And on the other hand, if you're in like a condominium or a townhouse where the associations bought the flood insurance, you're probably going to have to go and contact the association, have the association give you the name of the agent, contact the agent, have the agent then fax or send over something to prove that they have flood insurance on it or they're not going to lend. Okay, again, something to get out of the way. Okay, the next thing that we want to talk about is title insurance. Besides escrow, we're going to have title insurance. And the concept behind title insurance is the fact that we want to make sure that if I am buying, if you're buying a piece of property, your clients are getting ready to buy, buy a piece of property, that who they are buying it from actually owns it. Now, you may say, well, that doesn't make any sense. That sounds silly. I'm here to tell you that there's been scams that have been run and probably will continue to run in the future for the rest of centuries to come where people will, uh, for example, leave town, be out of town for three or four uh, weeks or, or a month or something. Somebody will come up with a bright idea saying, you know what, the Joneses are not there. Let's go ahead and down to that house, put a for sale sign on the outside, hold an open house, put the house on the property, or at least portray that we're putting the house on the property for something that's not ridiculously low, but, you know, makes it a really good deal. Let them go ahead and write out a check. I'll take the check, and guess what will happen? I'll disappear with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? In other words, that's called a confidence game or a scam or something like that. So the concept is, is that when you buy the property, you want to make sure, okay, is the people selling it really own it? That's number one. Okay, besides that, is there, what, what, what are the, what's against the property? Is there some liens? Are there any kinds of mortgages or deeds of trust against it? You don't want to buy a house only to find out that after you buy it that somebody turns around and you, you have some mortgage you have to take over. You want to know what's on it. You want to know if the property taxes are up to date. You want to know, uh, for example, are there any liens against it? Does the IRS have any liens or the State Franchise Tax Board? Or is there any other things? Are there mechanics liens? Maybe that new roof that was put on that they're telling you about two years ago, guess what? There's, they had an argument and they never paid the roofing contractor. So the roofing contractor has a lien. So the concept is we want to have somebody that's going to be responsible for checking all of that stuff and then ensuring us that what we're buying is really going to be ours. And that, the people that do that is the title insurance company. Okay? 
And essentially what happens is, is that as soon as you, the, es the real estate agent, call the escrow company and you open up that order, probably as soon as they get finished and hang the phone up, the next thing they do is they call the title insurance company or their title plant and they start this title search. And usually within 24 hours to 72 hours, depending upon how busy they are and how complicated it is, they will produce something called a preliminary report. And what your job is going to be as the real estate agent, in both cases, whether you're working with the seller or the buyer, is for you to look at that, to see if there's anything on there that you didn't know about. Make sure your clients look at it, see if there's anything on there that they don't know about. And if there is, then start some kind of process to get the problem corrected. Okay, so what does a title insurance company do? First of all, they chain the title. What they do is they go back and they look in the public records, the county recorder's office, and they go back and they look at who the current people that own it, how they hold title to it, who they bought it from, and they continuously chain that property back. Typically, nowadays, what they usually do is they'll chain it back as far as the point where the people that, that, that are selling it bought the property. Because prior to that, what will happen is the company prior to that is the one that's going to insure their part of the title. Um, when they do this title search, they're going to look at four different things. Um, they're going to look at such things as they're going to search the records. They're going to look for anything that's what we call examine for any kind of off-record risks. Okay, things that, that they could catch that are not necessarily within the records. They're going to look and see if uh, they're going to ensure for things like fraud. They're going to make sure that the documents were filled out correctly. So they're going to look against, uh, for things like that. So that's, they're going to do all this title search, and they're going to produce this report. Um, some of the things that are going to be on this report, and they don't have a report in here, but what I'll do is I'll show you what a policy, title policy looks like, and a preliminary report sort of looks a little bit like this. What will happen is when you get this preliminary title report from the title insurance company, it will have sort of like this information on it. And remember, what preliminary means is that it's kind of like the what the policy would look like unless there's a problem with it. That's essentially what they're doing. They're saying, hey, we're ready, willing, and able to insure this property based on what we see uh, 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 as a result of our research. So what's going to happen is they'll have uh, things up here, for example, like a policy number, a file number. Uh, then they'll come down here, and what's probably, um, just so you know, they'll put in here, for example, like on the po title policy, they'll talk about who's insured, here they're talking right down here that the insurance is going to be for Sycamore, I think it's Sycamore Financial Company. What this is is a policy that's going to insure the lender is what it is. Uh, down here they're going to define what it is that they're doing. So they're saying the estate or interest in the land which is uh, encumbered by the insured mortgage is, and they're going to state what kind of a property it is. In this case it happens to be a condominium. Remember a condominium by legal definition is you're owning the airspace within the walls. Okay, in other words, from the floor to the ceiling and the walls is what you own. All right? Even townhouses, the same thing. Townhouses and condominiums are essentially the same type of uh, legal thing. It's just a difference in the architecture. What you really do is you own the space that's within the walls. That's why if you have something like a leak in the roof, 
uh, and it starts to rain, you don't fix it. The association fixes it because that roof is common property. That's the reason why the association mows the lawn. The association fixes the pool because what you own is the airspace. So if something goes wrong, you know, a pipe breaks and floods your, your condo, your townhouse, it's the association that fixes it. You're responsible for what's within those walls. Okay. Um, this is telling you how the property is titled. In this particular case, it's held, and remember, if you were buying this, this would be, this would be uh, showing you who currently has title to the property, okay? But this is saying that Walter, uh, Walter uh, Roy Huber and Debbie Huber, their husband and wife is community property. That essentially means that they bought this place after they were married. They're holding it as community property. Community property essentially means in California is that, you know, whatever you acquire after your date of marriage, no matter who contributes, whether the husband works, the wife works, or you both work, it's still 50-50. So it's community property. Down below here, we have a couple other things that you're going to see on these types of reports. You're going to have a deed of trust, okay, that it'll say the deed of trust that was recorded. It'll tell you when it was recorded what the instrument number is, which is kind of like a document number that you can keep track of, that it's recorded in the official records. This is the amount of the deed of trust. That's the starting amount. In other words, the original amount that was borrowed was $296,800. The date of it, who the trustor was. Remember, the trustor is the same as the borrower. Who the trustee is. Remember, the trustee is the person that's going or the company that's going to agree that in the event of a default, it's the trustee that is going to go ahead and start and finish and foreclose on the property. So in other words, if something happens, you know, like if you go ahead and borrow the money and maybe you don't make payments on it and the, and the, and the lender says, you know what, I've tried to get the money out of this guy and he won't give it to me. You know, I've called him, I've sent him letters, I've tried everything else, and he starts the foreclosure procedure. It's the trustee that does the foreclosure, Okay. And if you violated any other part of the contract, you may be have uh, in the, uh, in the uh, financial uh, agreement that you've had, you may have something called an, uh, an alienation clause, meaning, hey, you know what? If you sell the property, the loan becomes due and payable. So they could, do, they could close, foreclose based on that. Foreclose on something that you're not following, whatever the legal requirements are. This is the beneficiary. These are the people that lent the money. Down here is the legal description. Remember, down here could be if you had, a, if you were out in the middle of nowhere, you could have a meets and bounds description, or if you had a large piece of property, it could be a, a government survey type, or it could be in a subdivision like a lot block. What this is basically doing is this is two different uh, descriptions here. The first description here, uh, it says that portion of a parcel, what they're doing here is that this happens to be the actual unit itself. So it says that portion of the parcel A of parcel map that was recorded in this date in the County of Los Angeles, State of California, on page 72, um, book 72, page 26. And right down in here is it says that this is unit number one. Okay, so I'm assuming there's a unit number one, a unit number two, a unit number three, unit number four. So this is specifically defining your unit. Then the second part of this is saying that you have, when you buy that, you have an undivided interest in the common area. So the common area would be things like, uh, you know, where the pool is, you know, the, the tennis courts, the clubhouse, 
uh, as I use as a silly example, you can't go down to the tennis courts and say, I own this part of the court. Or I can't go down to the pool and say, this part of the pool is mine. I have an undivided interest. There's no way of us specifically saying this is mine. It's, I just have an undivided. And I may have an undivided interest and if it's a large association, maybe a one-hundredth of an interest if it's a hundred units. Okay, so it's a non-divided interest. Okay, so that happens to be what you're going to see in this preliminary title report, sort of. Okay, the rest of what's in this document here is just the title insurance policy. And I'm not going to spend the time going over this, but I do recommend that you spend time at least going over these once or twice so that you understand what is covered and what is not covered. Uh, they'll insure for things such as forgery. Uh, they'll insure a lot of different things, but you need to know what they happen to be in order for you to explain it to the client. Okay, so that takes care of, I believe, that. The uh, next thing that I wanted to talk about here, um, let me see, Ta who pays, oh, okay, the, a couple other things that we want to talk about in here is, um, if I can get the right page, is who pays for the title insurance fees. Uh, as I've mentioned many, many times before, you're going to find out whatever's customary, you need to ask that. You know, if you wor you're working for a broker, say, customarily, and where we're located right now in Sacramento, who pays for the escrow fees, who pays for the title fees? You're probably going to find out that the seller may very well pay for the title fee, but that the policy that covers for, for the loan is going to be paid for by the buyer, okay, customarily. But remember, all that happens to be negotiable, right? Um... The next thing that we want to talk about that's in this chapter is something called a RESPA statement. This is another thing that you're going that we cover in real estate principles, but that you're going to need to make sure you uh, are able to explain it to a client. Don't get this confused with the escrow statement. This is the real. This is the uh, RESPA stands for Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act. The concept behind this is that the client is given a piece or document that explains where their money went, where it was spent. Very, very important. You may very well find out that this RESPA statement is something that, for example, once the escrow is completely closed and the final figures are, are settled, you may find out that if your client Let's say your client's selling a house. Let's say you're handling the listing part of the, of the transaction. You may very well find out that the uh, person that, uh, if they're selling a house, the person that they're, or the, the lender that is funding their loan on the new house that they're going to buy. Uh, let me go back and give you another example. So let's, say, let's say they're moving from Northern California to Southern California. It's not uncommon if they're going to move down there and buy another house that the lender who's in Southern California who's going to give them the money or lend them the money to buy the house down there is going to say to them, I want you to provide to us a copy of the RESPA statement showing that you actually did sell that house in, California, in Northern California. And you may say, well, why do, you want it? why do they want that? The reason why they want that is, remember, whenever you apply for a loan, they're looking at how much money you earn. They're looking at your credit report. They're looking at what you owe. 
when they approve you for the loan, they may very well say, yes, we approve you for the loan, but we're looking at the fact that the money that you're going to be using to pay that loan is the, is the money that you earn when you work every day. We're not looking at the fact that you're going to be paying for the loan down here and the loan up there. So what we want you to prove to us is that you sold that house. And in order to do that, they're going to want a copy of that RESPA statement. Okay? I had to do that when I sold my house. I had... I was selling my, my one house in El Dorado Hills, and I was moving to another part of El Dorado Hills, and the new lender wanted me to give them a copy of the RESPA statement to show that I had actually sold the house. Very, very important. So what does this RESPA statement include? Uh, let's see. I think we have one in here. This sort of is a little bit like the escrow statement, except it's, it's something that's required uh, called the uh, real estate uh, security or Settlement Act statement. Uh, what's going to happen is, is that you're going to notice that up here there's going to be some stuff that's going to look a lot kind of the same. Uh, up at the top, it's going to give you, it's going to call it that it's a U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development statement. So it's not, it's not a statement that's made by, it's, it's that U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development that are requiring this statement. It's not like an escrow company that's requiring it. This is a settlement statement. It's showing over here what kind of a loan that you have. So do you have an FHA? Of, you know, what kind of a loan is it? This happens to be a conventional loan that you're getting here. This is the escrow number. Over here is where we're putting the name of the borrower. Okay, this is the name of the seller. And then this is the name of the lender right here. Get smart. I love that. Okay, this is the property location. Where is the property actually located? It's not uncommon, for example, for you to, you know, uh, you know, for your mailing address to be different than the property address. Maybe you have a P.O. box or something. This has to be the, uh, the settlement agent, who the escrow company was, the place of the settlement right here, which happens to be the address of the escrow company. And this happens to be the date that the settlement actually took place, which now matches all the other dates that we have. Notice up at the top of the, of the uh, document, on one side, it says summary of borrower's transaction. On the right side, it says summary of seller's transaction. So we have now, instead of two different statements, we have one statement that shows everything. Okay. On the left-hand side, you'll see a lot of the same kind of common information we've seen before, you know, like the contract price, uh, different kinds of fees and adjustments that have been made. A lot of those fees and adjustments, those numbers are coming from the escrow statements. These are the amounts that were brought in in deposits. Okay, like this is showing the new second deed of trust. This is showing the new amount of the loan. This is showing the amount of deposits. Okay, um, so that's on this side right here. That's 811000 On this side over here is showing you the seller. The seller, this is what, how much money they got. This is showing you all of the different prorations that they had. This is, this is just further breaking down where all the money went. It's just showing you where every nickel and dime went. And then down the bottom, you'll see, for example, this is what their final figure was here. This is less the deductions, the amount to the seller. And then this is how much money they got out of it when they sold the property. Okay, so that's required, and that's required on any property that's from one to four units. And you may say, well, why one to four units? Because of the fact you'll notice everything that you do in real estate is one to four units if it's residential. Uh, because there's, like, for example, loans, one to four. 
you know, VA, FHA, whoever it happens to be, you can buy a property and buy it where it's just you living there or buy like a duplex where it's you rent out one side, you live in the other, or a triplex or a fourplex. So we're talking about this as a consumer-related thing and it involves one to four units, okay? So again, you'll need to be able to explain that to your client. Uh, the statement goes on from there, breaks down a few more fees on this side right here. This is just saying where the money went, just breaking it all down, where all the money went, who paid what, okay? So again, we could spend hours going over this, but basically what it is is that you'll need to know what all of this is so you can explain it to your clients. And what I have found out is that usually all of, all of the really good escrow officers and probably I don't know whether I've ever really seen a bad escrow officer. Usually they're all pretty good people. They're very customer-orientated. Uh, if you're a new agent, you just say, hey, I'm brand new. I'm brand new to the business. This is my first deal, my second deal, my third deal, whatever. Is it okay with you if I can find some time? Because I, you know, I want to look like I know what I'm talking about when my clients come in. So is it possible that we could set some time up uh, to the side that won't inconvenience you where I can come in and you can sit down and spend some time with me and explain what all these forms are. And after you do this several times, it really helps out. Go ahead. I have a question over here. Yeah. Some of these forms require, like, um, the notary public to be present. Is that where the real estate agent is there also and with the escrow officer also, or how does that work? The uh, question is, is what has to be notarized to notary, you know, notary things? Uh, I can't think of any escrow officer that's not also a notary public, okay? Um, what will happen is that they're all, they all have that authority. And so when you come in, the, uh, there are certain documents that have to be notarized. Any document that's going to be recorded at the county recorder's office has to be notarized. And the reason why it has to be notarized is you're trying to prevent fraud or what is that? Yeah, fraud. You're trying to prevent somebody from, uh, I can't think of the right word right now, but representing somebody else, um, imposter. You know, where you come in and say, oh, I'm Mary Jones. I'm Pat's wife, you know. You know, what they're doing is they're sitting there and they're going, wait a minute now. You know, when you come in here, I want a picture ID. I want to have your thumbprint. I want to, you know, I want to make sure that you are who you say you are, okay. But all the documents that are required to be recorded will be requiring notary. Uh, if the lender requires any additional documents, that's normally the person that's requiring. If they require anything to be notarized, they'll so state to be notarized. I have had in the past, for example, like there might be documents drawn uh, by an attorney uh, on, uh, like for example, I had a, I had an uncle, an aunt and an uncle, and the uncle aunt died first, and the uncle was left, and the uncle. Uh, when he passed away, the property was never going to go to any of the kids in our family. It was going to the uh, it was going to his wife's children. These children were also, by the way, like in their fifties, so they're not kids. What the attorney did is the attorney that was settling the estate in New York sent documents out that I had to sign that I had to then have notarized. Okay, so besides the normal ones that are recorded, you may have other documents that are recorded. 
what they'll do is they'll just sit there. You'll come in with your picture ID. You'll sign anything they know what it is. They'll go ahead and, and, and sign, and they'll put their stamp called an acknowledgment or a notary public stamp on it. And then they'll have you sign the book, put your thumbprint, and you're ready to rock and roll. Okay. You, the reason why you should be there, you should be there, is because you are the one that have been working with the clients. You are the one that understand. And all you have to do is put yourself in a position where all of a sudden, you know, you're going to have some major thing you're going to do in your life, and you're going to meet some people you've never met before for a relatively short period of time, and how, how would you feel? You know, you'd I mean, I would feel uncomfortable. I'd like to have somebody there that knows what they're doing that can explain it to me. And that's what you're doing when you show up as the agent. You know, you want to keep that whole thing going. You want that whole professionalism going. You want to make this look like it's easy, it's simple. You want to make the clients feel comfortable. And part of that is not get real close to the end of the deal and then just drop off the face of the earth. And, hey, I got my commission check. I'm not worried about things. Okay, you want to make sure you're all the way there. Okay, so anyway, there's this statement you need to know about that. The last thing that they talk about in this chapter that I think is probably very important, and we talk about it in principles, but you also need to be aware of this, and you don't want this to be holding up the escrow. And that is, how does your client want to take title to the property? You want them to know. You want your escrow officer to know what that is. They're going to have to prepare those documents that will say, you know, Mary Jones and Pat Jones as husband and wife, or as joint tenants, or as tenants in common, or whatever. Now, they may very well, a lot of people usually take it as community property or joint tenants, but there are other people that will say, you know what, I need to call my account and my attorney. I've done some estate planning. I need to do this. I, it needs to be in a trust. So you need to be telling your clients ahead of time so that, that you can tell and they can, conf they can mention that to the escrow officer. How do you want to hold title to the property? Very, very important. I can't tell you how important this really is. It's very important. Uh, it has to do, for example, if you hold properties, joint tenants, and one of the people dies, it automatically passes to the surviving joint tenant. If you hold it as tenants in common, guess what? It has to pass via some kind of another instrument, like a will. Now the property's got to go, end up going through probate. You may have clients that have a large enough estate that are going to want to hold it and that hold property in what we call a trust, okay, which is something that an attorney has prepared for them, a special document. What's important about this is you're not the one giving legal advice. The point of this is just to let you know the significance and the importance of the different ways to hold title. You know, that ba and these are only basics. This is by no means, you know, every stretch of the imagination. You have it as tenants in common, joint tenancy, community property. Community property, by the way, only applies to husband and wife. I can't have... Um, Myself and my son hold property as community property. It's only my wife and I can do it that way. And then community property with right of survivorship, meaning it's community property and it automatically passes to the surviving spouse. This talks about the number of the parties, who can do this, how the property is divided, the title, the possession, what happens, okay? Because when you own property, is like, for example, in tenants in common, you can, hold, you can hold that property in disproportionate sizes. So I could have like a third, uh, a quarter, and 50% or something. In other words, I can hold it where not everybody has the same exact size, whereas in joint tenants, they all have to have the same equal size. 
So it's like a third, a third, and a third, or quarter, 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 or a half and half. Okay. <clears throat> this just goes down here again. This is something else you want to look at: purchaser status. What happens at death? That's is where this stuff really comes in at death. What happens to the property when you die? Uh, what happens to the successor? Successor means what happens to the people that get the property or are left over? What about the creditor's rights? Okay, creditors mean people that have owed money, that are owed money. So um, just to uh, take an example here, if you go down here with uh, joint tenancy, it says parties, it could be any number of persons can, ha can be husband and wife, okay, but it could be father and son, whatever. Division ownership interest must equal and cannot be divided, must be of equal size. Title, there is only one title for the whole property, not two, just one. Possession, equal right of possession, so it's, you know, whatever the division is, they both have, if it's 50-50, they both have 50-50 right, okay. Conveyance, conveyance uh, by one co-owner who, uh, who, uh, I can't, without owners, uh, breaks joint tenancy. So in other words, can you convey your portion while you're alive? Yes, you can, but then when you do that, you automatically break the joint tenancy when you do that. Um, purchaser status, purchaser becomes a tenant in common. So in other words, if I sell a property, if I have joint tenancy, and I turn around and sell my interest, okay, what ends up happening is that person automatically now we have a tenant in common. Now we've changed everything. We've even changed how we're going to get rid of the property when we die. Okay. So anyway, this talks about death. Uh, upon owner's death, uh, I cannot read that. Uh, it looks like er his or her interest, oh, ends and cannot be willed, okay? So in other words, when you die, you know, you can't have a joint tenancy and then will the property to somebody else because the will actually takes and acts like, uh, I mean, sorry, the joint tenancy actually acts like a will. You're actually making that decision now. You're saying, hey, when I die, it goes to the other person. Okay? So anyway, we only have probably about another uh, 45 seconds or so. Uh, I really want to say that this is a very, very important part of the entire process. This is where everything comes together. This is a critical phase. It happens right near the end, right near when people are getting ready to get the property in the next couple days. Very, very important part of the process. I'd highly recommend that uh, when you're in the profession that you find yourself a really good escrow officer that really you get along with well, that knows all the problems that you may have and how you operate and how you work so that you can work together as a team. And with that, I think we're pretty much done with uh, show number 19, and we'll see you back here again for show number 20. Thanks for coming.